Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, in this hour, examining critical race theory, the truths and misinterpreted concepts. Started by a number of legal scholars of color who were interested in examining the intersections between race and racial injustice in the United States and the law. I think CRT, for the most part, the thing that troubles me the most is that many of us who engage in it understand that it's not something that's going to be introduced within K-12 spaces. That conversation is moments away. Also, as Father's Day approaches, we'll learn about the mission of the nonprofit Fathers Incorporated, located in Dunwoody, Georgia. All of that's just ahead. But first, this from our WABE newsroom. More than $4 billion is headed to Georgia's public schools. The funding will help schools reopen this fall. It's part of the American Rescue Plan. Georgia's U.S. Senators John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock announced the exact amount Monday. The total includes $193 million for APS, more than $189 million for Clayton County Schools, and $182 million for Cobb County Schools. And as always, a note of disclosure, WABE's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. In other news, Atlanta police have arrested two teenagers in connection with the shooting outside Lenox Square Mall Sunday, the latest in a string of shootings at the shopping center. Now, those two 15-year-olds are in a youth detention center. Residents on edge have made calls to city council members expressing concern. Atlanta City Council President Felicia Moore spoke with Morning Edition host Lisa Ram. Moore said the city needs to take aggressive measures to combat the increase in violent crime taking place throughout the city. That includes moving those officers who are eligible from administrative duties to street patrol. And finally, in sports, the Atlanta Hawks picked up the win they needed to bring their playoff series with the 76ers to an even 2-2. The Hawks managed to come back from an 18-point deficit in the second half last night to win 103-100. Game 5 is Wednesday in Philadelphia. Stay tuned. Closer Look continues after this. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cf 
greateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The Cobb County School Board adopted a resolution last week banning the teaching of critical race theory and the New York Times 1619 project in the district. The resolution passed by a vote of four to three and after a heated debate. The yes votes were from white Republican board members. All three black Democratic members abstained. During the public comment portion of the meeting, speakers addressed the board, and it was a mixture of support for the resolution and those opposed to banning critical race theory. Homer Kilmer agreed with the board's decision. Critical race theory is a theory espousing that all of society is racialized and properly viewed through a prism of identity groups based on race and color, with minorities being the oppressed while white people serve as the oppressor. In this ideology framing, all of society's ills are ultimately caused by white people and the various systems that CRT adherents associate with white culture. However, the Reverend Deborah Bennett challenged the four Republican white board members who voted yes on the resolution. I need help to understand what makes this board so fearful, so fearful that you have voted to not allow your children to critically explore their world. So fearful that you have looked at three of your fellow board members and the lived experience of over 40% of Cobb County and said, your experience, your lived experience doesn't matter. When pressed by another board member to define critical race theory and the 1619 Project, Cobb County School Board Chair Randy Scamahorn struggled to do so. Okay, I don't, uh, having not had that question presented to me, uh, in advance so that I could do a, a more thorough, I guess, answer is... Uh, Scamahorn finally defined the 1619 Project, which reframes the history of slavery in the U.S. as, quote, revisionist history. He added critical race theory, which is a legal theory devised in the U.S. that says racism is embedded in laws and policies. He says is, quote, Marxist or pity one group against the other. And there's a pattern here as well. Throughout the nation, Republican-led states have put forth efforts to ban the teaching of critical race theory. The Georgia Board of Education passed a resolution banning CRT from being taught in public schools. So there are a lot of questions. What are the long-term implications of banning critical race theory from K through 12? What does this mean for higher education? In part one of a discussion about critical race theory, we welcome Dr. Laura Renee Chandler from Oglethorpe University. She's the first vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion for Oglethorpe and a member of the senior administration leadership team. Also from Spelman College, Dr. Richard Benson, associate professor in the Department of Education and has been teaching critical race theory for more than a decade. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. There's a lot to dissect here. And one of the tenets here on Closer Look is to treat every segment as if a listener is hearing about a topic or issue for the first time. So these beginning questions may seem simplistic, but I can assure you they are important. So Dr. Chandler, I'm going to begin with you. From an academic standpoint, through your lens, 
What is critical race theory? So through my lens, um, it's a very specialized area of study that comes from the legal field. Um, it's about 40 years old. Um, and was started by a number of uh, legal scholars of color who um, were interested in examining the intersections between race and um, racial injustice in the United States and the law. And so it looked at a number of areas dealing with integration, with housing, uh, with education. And so what is the role of race and the law in understanding these different areas of American society? And in particular, um, the injustices and inequities that we continue to see despite many victories that occurred in the mid 20th century during the civil rights movement. As I mentioned before, it's a very you know, specialized field of study. Uh, it's not something that's taught in, in most uh, uh, college courses, although many undergraduate students will come into contact with it. Um, and I didn't even really come into contact with it until I was engaged in my studies as a graduate student. Dr. Benson, care to add or counter any part of Dr. Chandler's assessment of what critical race theory is all about? Nothing to counter. Um, Dr. Chandler, I don't think we've ever met, but I just wanna say hello. How you doing? Hi. It's funny because when uh, Dr. Chandler, when she was closing out, a, when she was closing out a statement, when she spoke to when, or I guess at what point of her academic career that she was actually introduced to CRT, um, critical race theory, CRT for short or whatever, she said she came into contact with as a grad student. I've been teaching it at Spelman since 2009, so actually most of us have a. I would say who've been familiarized with CRT, many of us didn't come into contact with it in, until either grad school, in many of the most cases, either advanced aspects of master's degree programs, or um, if you were seeking you know, to become a legalist or, or a lawyer. So many of the most cases, you would have one course that would be taught within a law school, by and large, and for the most part, within master's degree programs like in ed or in sociology, you would have a course on CRT, or at least a module because it morphs out of critical studies. So, you know, Derek Bell and the like or whatever, who were able to construct it for the most part, engineered TRT to be a lens through which they would teach to ensure that students who were coming through the law field would have an introduction with respect to race to show that it was endemic and not separate from the practices that they were engaging in as legalists. So that's all I would add. Well, Dr. Benson, let me stay with you because there's so much written and stated about critical race theory, and especially within the last year. Mm -hmm. What troubles you the most that typically is falsely disseminated, and even in a field like mine, through the media, through the news media? I think CRT, for the most part, the thing that troubles me the most is that many of us who engage in it understand that it's not something that's gonna be introduced within K through 12 spaces. So like, if you look at CRT, from its inception, as we go back to advanced degree status with respect to its introduction, even an undergraduate, for the most part, is not gonna have much familiarity with it. The reason that I introduce it as a significant module to a course that I teach in education at Spelman, which is called Advocacy at Urban Schools, is because my training as a social and cultural theoretician, in addition to being a historian, involved the very early tenets of CRT based on my advisor. So my advisor, who's probably considered to be a top five theoretician in critical race theory by the name of um, Lawrence Parker, who was at the University of Illinois at Brandon-Champaign, he's at the University of Utah now. Um, I took courses with him in addition to one of my close colleagues who considered top three or top five 
theoretician was a CRT um, scholar within education by the name of Dr. David Stowall. So the classes that I took with Dr. Parker, then the relationships that I built with colleagues, we understood that CRT for the most part, and now you look at it not in, in law, but in, or I would say the evolution of CRT in ed, in lat crit, in queer studies, and then this evolution actually um, now taking form within lat crit, within queer crit. Um, and you see CRT now evolving in such a way that in many of the most cases, even undergraduates who are just learning, if, whether it be in sociology or political science, they're familiarizing themselves with like Emil Durkheim and, and Max Weber and you know, in those particular social constructs, but not even constructs that are critical of the constructs. So they're not even necessarily looking at E. Frank inflation. They're looking at the earliest work of Du Bois with the Philadelphia Negro. They're literally looking at a construct that is, for the most part, it's almost um, still within its infancy because it's only 40 years old. Mm -hmm. So those are some, you know, some things that strike me the most alarming with respect to CRT. Uh, I have a lot more to add to that, um, you know, in terms of looking at it longitudinally, because mm -hmm. one of my arguments as a grad student was always, well, if Derrick Bell, who obviously would have been influenced by any aspect dealing with the Black freedom struggle or the movement from 55 to approximately about 76, you know, would have been more than influenced by the tenets which are grounded in movements that go back to that of Dessalines, a book mine, you know, dealing with the Haitian Revolution, or one of my favorites dealing with David Walker's appeal in his mm -hmm. four articles. So that unpacks not necessarily something that's critical of just race, but it's critical of race, it's critical of hegemony, it's critical of imperialism and colonialism. Dr. Chandler, let me get your thoughts on that. What is mostly misinterpreted about critical race theory? Um, well, I think it, it's really two things. So first of all, it has been used really as this sort of catch-all phrase, you know, the way that we see it um, being used by many politicians and the Board of Education. Um, it, it, it refers to any discussion or race or racism that makes people uncomfortable, right? Um, and that of course isn't what it is. We shouldn't base education. We shouldn't base our education system on, on what people are most comfortable familiar with. And, you know, I think that another thing that's concerned me about it is, is it has been around for 40 years. Uh, and it seems that we're only now really talking about it because there is a movement to try to ban it. Right, um, that that journalists and, and the media haven't really been um, interested or, or concerned with this particular field of knowledge and its origins and where it's come from and um, and why scholars wanted to talk about the intersections of race and the law um, until there has been a, a movement that is is largely connected to to other efforts, whether it's voting or um, other things that we see happening around the country. That now it's become. Uh, a topic of conversation. And so I, I think it really deserves to be considered on its own merits. If you're just joining us, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. And I'm joined by Dr. Laura Renee Chandler from Oglethorpe University, the first vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion for Oglethorpe, and also from Spelman College, Dr. Richard Benson, associate professor in the Department of Education, and he's been teaching critical race theory for more than a decade. And that's what we're discussing all the concerns about critical race theory, the truths, and the misinterpreted. Something else that we're starting to notice in all these concerns and, and quite frankly, complaints about CRT is teaching racial inequality. And so I'm asking, is teaching racial inequality 
considered a tenant of CRT because it's become problematic when I've been teaching racial inequality for a, a very long time. Mm-hmm. So how problematic is that if people want to lump that as a tenant of CRT? So I, I am worried about the chilling effect that it will have um, in the K through 12 system. But you're right. I mean, there are many conversations that we have about the role of race and racism in the United States that are not connected to the field of critical race theory. Um, you know, discussions about anti-racism, the role of social justice. You know, these are really their own fields of thought and fields of study. Um, and I think that that we need to trust our educators really in the classroom to be able to develop curriculum and, and to develop topics that speak to the experiences of their students. Dr. Benson, what do you think? Because we are hearing all these concerns about, well, if you're teaching racial inequality, mm-hmm. then you're teaching critical race theory and that's mm-hmm. wrong. You know, it, it's, it's funny, but it's really not funny, especially in this space of, of being in the 21st century. I think many of us who probably our children of the 70s who grew up in the late 70s, coming through the 80s or whatever, you probably came into adulthood in the 90s. I think many of us thought that what it is that we're discussing now would have been passe in respect to, you know, we have already accomplished what needs to, you know, take place in terms of some possible national, racial, ethnic, cultural truth and reconciliation commission, but it's sad that we haven't. So now we look at this moment now, and we're well aware for many of us who do this work as to what the outcomes or the intended outcomes are. Um, And essentially, you know, it'll set the precedent in order to eliminate ethnic studies, but most importantly, black studies, Native American studies, Latinx studies, et cetera, um, First Nation, you know, people's information, et cetera, because now we're talking about not, not dealing with the lore or mythology. We're talking about a complex intersection of histories, plural, you know, Howard Zinn, Joel Spring, James D. Anderson, et cetera, and the like, who are historians who've done, you know, work that unpack, you know, multiple layers of history. And, you know, as of recent, if you can keep up with, you know, his, his, his productivity and his production, Gerald Horn has extended the conversation with respect to looking at the histories from 1776 to the contemporary to see, I mean, to show, you know, what the implications have been. I think a lot of what it is that, I express or would like to express, and I don't want to speak for Dr. Chandler, but I think we're, you know, what I'm on, on on this with respect to looking at CRT, a lot of it can be looked at or actually look, looked at from a lens that Baldwin, James Baldwin gave us in 1963. Baldwin did an article called A Talk to Teachers. Um, easy to find, you'd be able to Google it or whatever, pull it up or whatever, it ended up becoming an extended essay. But Baldwin, he wrote that, you know, when educators or teachers or instructors attempt to essentially, um, you know, develop critical minds beyond kind of like this narcotized citizenry in which we're given and move beyond myths, they're going to face the most determined resistance. And then he began to break down mythology. So he would, you know, give us everything from, you know, Columbus's founding or an individual or individuals who are attempting to expand empire, supposedly bring civilization because Obviously, them brown and black folks who existed before, they couldn't have added civilization prior, you know, to, you know, to those persons who were invading. But Baldwin gives us something, I think, that needs to be looked at because he's stating that what's taking place is a part of a larger colonial project. We have to be able to maintain the consistency in terms of this paradigm that looks at how it is that you construct not only whiteness, but how it is that you construct this monolith of patriotism as if it can only look one way 
or this monolith of citizenry as if it can only look one way. And those are some of my biggest concerns because once laws like this are passed, now the catch-all will be, well, that sounds like CRT. So if we have it to question or come with, which is a tenet of CRT, a narrative that counters whatever that the grand so-called master narrative may be, then all of a sudden you're gonna be, you know, effectually um, neutralized based on someone saying that you are in transgression of a law that's unjust. And I'll add one more thing with respect to this. Um, in terms of, you know, constructing narratives and histories and stories, you know, this is a very intentional undertaking. So much so as we both know that, um, you know, contemporarily you can still be in Texas as a student or in Georgia as a student and hear the language that's attached to enslaved Africans as being indentured servants or being, you know, wage workers or workers versus enslaved um, bodies of individuals who were affected by chattel or one of my favorites, um, you know, the, the civil wars we had identified it for, you know, a few centuries at this particular point being a, um, you know, a, a moment of engagement around states' rights or one of my favorites, a war, the, the war of Northern aggression. You know, for the most part, what you're still taught, then you can add the book bans, be it in Arizona, or other states, et cetera. But I mean, but it's a very crucial moment in which it's necessary for us to push back to not, to not only unpack, you know, some of this erroneous claims, but also to push forward in terms of um, allowing educators and also those who construct curriculum to be more courageous in their thinking. Dr. Chandler, given your background and expertise in diversity, equity, and inclusion, can critical race theory, can those principles be a complementary component when we talk about implementing DEI plans, strategies, and, and other initiatives? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I think we have to engage in a critical examination um, of the history of this nation when we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion. I listened to the conversation um, that took place at the, the Board of Education, uh, and there were a number of people on the call who talked about, you know, we embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion um, in our state, in our school districts. And, you know, I think many people on the call may think that they're coming from a good place, right? Um, but, you know, one of the central tenets of DEI is that it, it really means embracing the entirety of who a person is and who a group of people are, um, their history, their experiences, their present and their future. Um, and it's not just the parts of their history and who they are that you're comfortable with or that you're comfortable describing um, or, or that you're comfortable hearing about. Um, it's really the entirety of who they are. We're in a state where over 50% of uh, the young people who are in schools in this state are people of color. And they are soon going to be at our higher education institutions and even more of them will be in the workforce. And so we need to be prepared to speak to their experiences, to understand where they're coming from, to understand the world in which they live and how they view it. Um, and many students come to the classroom. You know, we talk about students as uh, the, the, or we talk about teachers as their role is to teach students how to think and not what to think. Well, the truth is students are contributors to knowledge. They don't come to the classroom as blank slates, right? They come with fully formed ideas and opinions about what they see happening in the world around them. They want to know what their instructors think. They want to know what staff think. Um, and they expect them to be responsive to their experiences, right? And, and how they see the world. Um, so while, you know, I don't think that 
it, it will necessarily be a, a core tenet of curriculum. I think that there are important viewpoints about race and history that we should absolutely take into consideration when thinking about DEI and creating DEI strategies. Dr. Benson, what do you think? You know, the funny thing about DEI, I think in many cases, especially as a student coming through teacher education programs, um, I was fortunate enough to have mentors who, you know, especially at that time, because social justice was kind of like the sexy word that was being used. So, you know, if you, you know, picking up trash and, you know, in, in, in front of a, um, a um, resource poor neighborhood, et cetera, you know, that's social justice and things of this nature. So it became kind of like this umbrella term. So DEI was one of those, I would say, kind of like um, phrases that evolved, or I would say dealing with diversity, equity, inclusion, to now be more in alignment with something I would identify, or other scholars have also identified with, it's kind of like being the three Fs of education. So, you know, fun, food, and festivals. So, you know, so it's like, so you went into the room in terms of us talking about you when we can, you know, now have a celebration around Cinco de Mayo or, you know, something that with Kwanzaa or something of that nature, whatever. But in terms of like really unpacking, you know, the deep histories is something that I think most educators, most educators and, you know, and by and large are gonna have to teach it for us, which is predominantly, you know, white and female have not been courageous enough to do. So we're talking about diversity. We're not talking about, you know, the aesthetic aspect of what it is that you may consider to be a part of kind of like diversity within a particular space, but is a curriculum as diverse as those inhabitants or those physical individuals who are now present within the room as well. In many of the most cases, it's a no, because you have to be, again, I keep coming back to this word, courageous enough to teach the information holistically. And, and one last thing, that now involves the educator now having to now having to remove themselves from their own privileges, you know, from their own levels of entitlement, you know, from their own shortcomings with respect to how it is that they are not able to engage within, you know, race and culture as well. That's necessary if it's going to be done properly. And then not to like literally resign themselves under the safety of a law based on someone saying, well, that's something I can't teach because that sounds like critical race theory. And as we wrap up and everything that we've discussed today as it relates to critical race theory and efforts to ban the teaching of it um, in K through 12, what concerns do you all have in higher education and what this means for educating students who are going to be educators? My biggest level of concern is still dealing with my students who were training to become educators because I'm, I'm understanding that I mean, I have a deep understanding and I'm not in any way, shape or form oblivious to that once they leave my course or the like of other colleagues within my department who also have critical perspectives that, you know, they're literally going to be, you know, saved from all things, you know, dental with xenophobia. You know, that's not, that's not the, you know, the, I would say the world of fantasy that we engage in. Our biggest concern is that they're gonna go into spaces in which they've been grounded within critical instruction and also being able to unpack and teach students who think critically that they're not going to be celebrated or embraced in other school systems and thus, you know, made to be the scapegoat or the straw person in those particular schools based on the legislation in addition to the school boards and, you know, and most importantly, those individuals who decide what shall and shall not go, you know, into the general curriculum, you know, for region, states, et cetera. Like that's our biggest concern um, on that level. And then also, um, I pray that my students are, never get their spirits broken, you know, within 
the, the process of becoming, you know, those who are not as producers, because all of our students are not going to go into the classroom in a K-12 setting. Some of them are going to go on to become professors, and many of them are going on to become um, policymakers, et cetera, engage in think tanks. I just hope that once they leave Spelman, and then they go to, you know, predominantly white or traditionally white institutions in order to gain degrees of advanced knowledge that their classroom experience in PW and TWIs are not so violent and othering that, you know, they become discouraged from actually engaging more in truth seeking in more critical work around history, sociology, political science, et cetera. So that's, you know, that's my concern, but, but still, you know, just like the old folks would say when, when I was growing up, ain't no, rest, ain't no rest for the weary. So, you know, something that we got to keep fighting and keep doing. Dr. Chandler, I'll give you the last word on that as we move forward in the future of this. You know, I'm sure like Dr. Benson, I've, I've worked in higher education for a very long time. And I know that these kinds of um, attacks and these types of conversations are really recurrent. Um, they, they tend to come up over and over again. Um, they often are in response to successes or efforts of advancement when it comes to social justice and when it comes to racial equality. And, and so I think they will continue to happen, uh, but the work continues, right? And for those of us who are really committed to the work, um, especially when it comes to educating, supporting students, um, it won't change much about what we do in terms of supporting mm -hmm. those communities. Um, mm -hmm. But I do worry, I mean, as Dr. Benson, Dr. Benson was mentioning, you know, I worry about the spirit of our students. I worry about their morale. I worry about the morale of our educators. Um, you know, we are the experts when it comes to supporting students and educating them. And I think that we should trust what educators do in the classroom when it comes to supporting their students, uh, to speaking to their histories and their experiences. Uh, we know what the research tells us about what BIPOC students, Black, Indigenous, and, and, and persons of color, uh, what they need to succeed in the educational institutions. They need to see themselves reflected not only uh, within the institution, but also within the curriculum. Um, these things are incredibly important. And so, you know, I, I want them to know that the staff and faculty who are here to support them as students will remain committed to them and remain committed to this work. Um, and we'll continue to deal with these challenges as they come up over and over again. Dr. Laura Renee Chandler from Oglethorpe University and also the first vice president of diversity, equity and inclusion for Oglethorpe also a member of the Senior Administrative Leadership Team from Spelman College, Dr. Richard Benson, Associate Professor in the Department of Education, and has been teaching critical race theory for more than a decade. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. A programming note, we'll continue examining CRT on tomorrow's Closer Look with a member of the Georgia Board of Education. Dr. Chandler, Dr. Benson, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Sunday is Father's Day, and I know sometimes dear old dad doesn't get all the great gifts like mom. Perhaps TV's favorite dad has a solution. Joy! 
straight to the world a father's born. Let me receive great gifts. Dad, there's no such thing as Father's Day Eve. No Father's Day Eve? Does this mean there's no such thing as Daddy Claus? <laughs> Fine, there's a Daddy Claus. Is there a Super Bowl bunny? Sure, why not? <laughs> well, while Homer is excited and while you all figure out what to get Dad for Father's Day, we're going to talk about something else as it relates to fatherhood. Headquartered here in Dunwoody, Georgia, is the nonprofit Fathers Incorporated. Their mission, as defined, Fathers Incorporated works to change the current societal and cultural definition of family to be inclusive of fathers. Joining me now is Lawrence Wilbon. He's the Director for Business and Program Development for Fathers Incorporated. Welcome to the program and an early happy Father's Day to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me today. Let's begin here. I want a little bit of backstory about you. Tell me about the first time you learned you were going to be a father and that feeling that you that you experienced. So when I first learned I was going to be a father, I was actually really nervous because I was that uh, individual that was raised without a father. So I, I didn't quite know what to expect and what to do, because we all know that parenting does not come with a manual. And so I didn't know what to read and know who to talk to. So I was nervous, but then immediately after nerves kind of settle, um, there was a, an, an excitement and joy about being able to, to care for another human being. You said you were nervous. What were some of the concerns you had? Absolutely. So not knowing how to raise a child, not knowing what is the best thing for that child. Then I, of course, my mind went to, oh my gosh, you're going to be in kindergarten at some point. And then I'm about to deal with bullying. So not knowing what school to send them to. So all those type of uh, concerns uh, were, were things that I was struggling with. And how long did it take for you to get to that comfort level and where you were like, you know what, I'm pretty good at this dad thing, this fatherhood thing. I'll be honest, I'm still still trying to get there. Uh, but I think that joy piece happened probably around age two. So it almost took about two years. Now let's talk about Fathers Incorporated. How long have y'all been around? Uh, Fathers Incorporated has been uh, in existence for about 17 years. Started as an organization to help uplift that the voice of the father and make sure the father was a part of that narrative of parenting. Um, we push responsible fatherhood. And so uh, we started just building capacity with other organizations that want to include men in that narrative. And so shortly after that, we really began to start doing more direct service and working directly with fathers and empowering those fathers to be the best fathers that they can be uh, in, the, in their lives with their children. We're going to talk about some of those initiatives in just a moment, but I'm curious in your role as a director of business and program development, are there certain particular areas or interests that you all hear from fathers where they say, this is something that I really need some, some resources that you all can offer? What are they? Absolutely. So what's interesting, you know, we deal with an array of fathers. So, you know, you have the professional fathers that are trying to figure this balance thing. How do I balance my career and balance still being the best father I can be? with sports and whatever. Then we have the other side where we have fathers who are uh, involved with child support cases and those type, type of situations. One of the main things that have been kind of emerging here lately is this whole idea around legitimization, um, where many folks don't, don't know that once 
if a father, a mom, and dad were not married the time the child was conceived in the state of Georgia, that father does not have rights to that to that child. So those going to the doctor don't have the rights to to be able to uh, speak on behalf of those medical needs, education needs. So legitimization is probably one of the emerging issues or concerns that fathers are reaching out to us for uh, because they want to make sure that they are able to be active participants in their kids' lives. Now, Lawrence, you all are a nonprofit, but based on what you just said, do you all try to lobby for policy and legislation changes as it relates to parental rights uh, for the father here in Georgia? Absolutely. A part of our work is around advocacy. And so we do some advocacy work, created a uh, piece of our work called the Monaghan Institute for Research. And so with the Monaghan Institute, we have researchers and fellows that are helping us push this the work around advocacy so that we're able to make sure that certain legislations that are in place that are not really in place to help strengthen the family, you know, we can kind of help move those some of those legislations out the way. You know, in the state of Georgia, I'll say it again, that legitimization piece, there's only a few states, one or two, I think, states, that legislation in place. And I think with voices and, and pushing against that needle, we can kind of help change some of that. I'm curious, uh, Lawrence, how often do you have very young fathers reaching out to you all as well? I mean, young in terms of teens. Yeah. We don't have a whole lot of teenage fathers, um, but, but we do have young fathers that we're categorizing between 18 to 25 year olds. And those fathers are reaching out to us simply because we've created um, what we're calling the brotherhood. And so the brotherhood is just simply part of the brotherhood is accountability. So you have someone who've been tried and true, who's gone through some of the same issues, concerns that you've gone through that can now pour into you to make sure that you're, you see those pitfalls, you're able to step over them as well. And so the 18 to 25 year olds, those are the ones that are reaching out to us the most. And I want to take a moment and talk about a campaign you all are involved in, and that's Black Dads Count. What's that all about? So originally, when we started Black Dads Count, it was really centered around the U.S. Census, because we understand that if we're not counting, then resources are going to be allocated in different places, and they're not going to be allocated in communities where people who look like me are in. And so we created the campaign really simply just to really help fathers realize that you count but really play on words that you actually count in the lives of your kids. You count in your community. You count in really legitimizing your place in your role uh, within community and in your families. And so we've taken the, the Black Dads Count campaign and have broadened it um, to really address the importance of, of men being in the places that they need to uh, be in for their children. And Lawrence, I'm curious, during this pandemic, which of course we're all still in, did you all see an increase in fathers or soon to be fathers needing assistance, seeking resources from your organization? This pandemic was, it was interesting, right? You know, we've talked about it where, you know, our lives were so busy and the pandemic really put a halt on everything. And whether it be, you know, you're running, racing, get to work and you're not taking the time that you that you need to take with your children or whatever the case may be. What we found out during this pandemic is that there were so many fathers that reached out to us for basic needs, diapers, 
they, they lost employment. So they were looking for jobs. Um, when this whole virtual learning, which was the, that was probably one of the most difficult part of my personal experience during the pandemic was a virtual learning. Cause I think I'm a pretty smart guy, but when you're teaching your kids, um, you know, the material that the teachers normally teach them, you start seeing your inadequacy. So we had a lot of fathers who were reaching out to us about how to even co-parent during the pandemic. There were some issues going on between mom and dad. So dads were reaching out to us, trying to figure out how to deal with this pandemic. And so we all know people lost their jobs. Um, So that did increase the number of stay-at-home dads. There were times where there were some mothers who were um, earning more money. And so dads, they made a decision to stay home. And uh, so dads were, were, were being really actively and get more actively engaged uh, during this pandemic. If you're just joining us, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott, and I'm joined today by Lawrence Wilbon. He's a director of business and program development for Fathers Incorporated, which is a nonprofit headquartered in Dunwoody, Georgia, with Father's Day this Sunday, we're talking about the mission of the organization, providing resources for fathers. And Lawrence, I'm also curious, do you all offer any type of resources or guidance in terms of mental health issues uh, that fathers may be experiencing and need some assistance? Absolutely. So I'm glad you mentioned that. So part of the pandemic, we all dealt with not just the the actual pandemic. We also had the other pandemic, the racial injustices that were going on with the murder of George Floyd and so many others. And during that time, all I could think about is don't push me. I'm close to the edge. That song kept popping in my head during the pandemic because it was so much tension going on. And so what we did as an organization is we created a safe space for men and we call them the men's den and the men's den happens every month and it's a safe space where we were we're doing it virtually right now and you know our goal is to move it when we actually fully get back into person have it as a place where men are able to come kind of disrobe kind of talk about these issues talk about the things that are pushing them to the edge, whether it be staying at home doing virtual learning or mm-hmm. teaching, uh, whether it be any kind of injustices that may be going on. But what we found is that this space has become like a sacred space in a healing healing kind of space, healing circle, uh, if you will, for, for these men. And so we host it every fourth Thursday of the month. And it's a private group. Once you register to come in, we only let you come in and we won't have to have your camera on uh, so that we can see your face. And so it's a very, a very tr- transformational kind of group uh, that happens. But we that was our approach of trying to deal with some of the uh, mental health concerns, because we were all struggling with some things um, because of this pandemic the fall. You know, you talked about some of those areas and topics and resources that the fathers really were looking forward to that the fathers were asking more of. But as you see it with your organization, is there an area that you all wish you could offer more support in or have yet to implement? I think as an organization, if we were to, um, if we were able to increase accessibility to more uh, employment opportunities, accessibility to those family courts, 
and really have connections with judges and and attorneys that could help with the legitimization and and work through those kind of processes. Those would be some of the things that I would think accessible, uh, higher wage paying jobs. Um, Because the thing is, what we realize is that our fathers, you know, it's not that they don't want to be involved. Sometimes it's not knowing how to be involved. It's not knowing what they should be doing. Um, And I'm not making an excuse, but it's the reality. You know, as I started off early on talking about my experience, I didn't know how to raise a child. I didn't have no idea how how to be a father. And over the years, I've learned it's been through trial and error, but if I'm, if we're able to help a father now so that he doesn't have to walk through some of those pitfalls, I mean, I think that's a win for us. As a nonprofit, you all have to assess the effectiveness of your programs. And obviously maybe when you're seeking funding, how do you all gauge or measure your impact for this specific population, which in this case is fathers? Not to get technical, but we use the results-based accountability kind of method where we look at how much of is working, you know, how well are we doing, um, how, how better off is the client that we're working with. So we use that model, um, that framework as the way that we uh, monitor and look at the effectiveness of our programs. But I will say where the rubber meets the road for us. And when we are able to put a, as, as I've heard of my, one of my old employers to say a W in the win column is when we see a father who was not as engaged, who is now more engaged with their child. And it's reported out by dad and even by the kids that there's a more of engagement there. That to us is a win. And we have many of, many of those opportunities that have come across our, across our desk and so that's a W in the win column for me. When we started this segment and I was jokingly talking about Father's Day gifts, what's that one Father's Day gift you wanted, but you still have yet to receive? <laughs> what's funny is we were, we were, my wife and I were talking about this the other day, and it, it probably is not the most, you know, acceptable gift, but the gift of being left alone. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> We laugh about it. I, she said, what do you want for Father's Day? I said, you know what? I said, what if, you know, I had a day away? And she said, well, that, you know, the kids are what makes you a father. I, said, I get that. I said, but when you're a 100% all-in dad, and moms probably have the same concern. You I was going to say, Lawrence, I have no sympathy for you. Welcome to mom's world. I know. <laughs> <laughs> they have the same concern. Um, but no, I think that the gift I've not received yet is that, um, there's a, a car that I want, but I know that, oh. you know, my kids will have to wait until they actually finish college, um, become the superstars that they're going to become. And then, uh, I'll wait for that car then. So, uh, What's the car Lawrence, you know, I actually believe in, I want a Tesla. So, uh, oh. I, I, I keep, <laughs> keep kind of, uh, my son says, I'm gonna get this Tesla for you. And I said, okay, well. He's 13. I said, well, you know, you got, you got a couple more years to work on that. So uh, hey, these kids are bright. They're smart. He might begin a startup. And in two years, you'll have three Teslas. Absolutely. He's the, he's the one that I'm, you know, he talked about, he's going to uh, discover a cure for cancer. All and right. because the way his mind is set up, he might be that person. Our audience can't see this, but behind you, you have 
large frame photos of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. with Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. I'm just curious, uh, what do these men mean to you? And have they in some way influenced you as a dad? Or your approach as a father or as a man? Absolutely both. These three men on my wall, um, they are my, I don't use the word guardian angels, but they sit there on my shoulders as a constant reminder of the work that needs to be done as men, especially as a black man. Um, but then also I look at them individually as fathers and being able to years ago meet Muhammad Ali before he passed and meeting his children. And then I met Ambassador Shabazz, mm-hmm. uh, Malcolm X's daughter, and being able to be in her presence and learn about her father has been one of those greatest moments of my life. And so all three of these men, you know, when you think about fatherhood, you know, they had one goal in mind, and that was to make sure that their children were protected and make sure that their children had everything that they needed to be successful. And they're my inspiration. They're my inspiration. Final question, I promise. For that new dad, this Father's Day, who's out there listening, it's their first Father's Day. What do you want them to know about fatherhood? Well, I'll just say it again. Fatherhood is not a mystical thing. It's attainable. Uh, It is, and being a responsible father is attainable. I think we have to debunk the myth that father, that especially Black fathers are not involved. We are involved. We are engaged. We are excited. We love our children. Regardless of any other situation, we love our children. Uh, we may love differently, but in fact, we still love. And so I would encourage, um, as our CEO uh, always says, to stay in the game. You know, stay in the game. You know, the, the, when, you, when you disconnect out of your child's life, there's a lot of negative behaviors and a lot of other negative outcomes that will happen. And so ultimately, just stay in the game with your child and, and you'll, see the, you'll see the fruit of your labor. Lawrence Wilbon, Director of Business and Program Development for Fathers Incorporated, which is headquartered in Dunwoody, Georgia. It's a nonprofit. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Happy Father's Day again. I don't know if you'll get the Tesla on Sunday, but you never know. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I won't, but thank you for the <laughs> thank you for the, the Father Day shout out and happy Father's Day to everybody who's listening. All right. Thank you so much, Lawrence. I appreciate it. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to send us your feedback on all the conversations and features you hear on the program. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR, I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.